awesome job. Give them another round of applause as they go back to their class. Great job. Of course, they've had a full day yesterday and then today, getting up bright and early and pulling them away from their toys. Parents, you should be ashamed of yourself. What, 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 a, what, a, what a, uh, a joy to see the children grow up and to see them at all ages and stages of their life and to know that our kids are, your kid, my kid's perfect. It's all the other kids out there that we have to worry about. Um, actually, these kids are old enough to realize their own imperfections. They're, they're old enough to realize and they live in a world that they realize as they're dealing with friends and neighborhood kids and kids at school that uh, the kids around them are not perfect. You remember those, those playground games that you would play, kickball, dodgeball, baseball, football, whatever it is, and then they'd line everybody up and say, who's playing? Okay, pick you, your captain, your captain, and you pick your teams. Now, you never want to be the last guy picked. That's no fun to be the last one picked. I've been picked. I know. I've been there and been the last one picked. And what, what, what you feel like whenever you're the last one picked. Well, today, we come to the Christmas story, and we're picking the last one. It's a a story that probably most of us don't even really register, because it's the last one picked. It's kind of like you have four or five Sundays leading up to Christmas. You preach that on the Magi. You preach maybe on Mary. You preach maybe on, on the shepherds. You preach on those standard messages. But when you go one more week, and you're looking at all these different characters and players in the Christmas story. And you're asking every single one of those, what do you believe about Jesus? And how did you express that belief in Jesus? We can't leave these two individuals out. In fact, uh, uh, just, just to show you how I think, and I, I've not tested this, so you're the test group, okay? And I'll either, either it works or it won't work, and the second service will either get it or won't get it. So here it is. If you had heard before coming to Grace Point a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Magi, okay, and the wise men, if you had heard that story before coming to Grace Point Church, would you raise your hand? Uh, come on, everybody. All right, participate. All right, just participate. Good. Just about all of y'all. Now, once you get your hands all back up, just raise your hand. How many of y'all have ever heard the story of Anna and Simeon? Okay, the last one's picked. Anna and Simeon are the ones who don't get picked to tell the Christmas story. But it's a very valuable Christmas story that gets left out. Those people who haven't heard of Simeon and Aaron, because they're just on the pages of Scripture for just a short moment, and then they're gone. It's about 40 days. Now, granted, it wasn't the night whenever the angels appeared and Jesus was just born, but it was most likely before the, the Persian wise men from the east arrived. We have estimated of that that maybe it was within the first two years that they arrived because they were going to have all the babies two years and younger uh, murdered. So we know that it was maybe probably before the wise men arrived, but it was probably after the shepherds got there. So somewhere in that middle, about 40 days, Jesus was no more than a month and a few days old, and there's a man named Simeon that appears on the pages of Scripture. We know very little about the guy. Okay, really, we know only what we see in a few handful of verses, and then it's over. He's gone, never appears again. And the same is true of Anna. It's about 40 days, and again, we find in the book of Luke, chapter 2, it's about 40 days following the, the birth of Christ, and we know that 
just by the Jewish traditions of worship, that seven days into, into a child's life, that they would go for circumcision for a young male. And then 33 days following that, there was a time where it was a time of going into the worship, going into the temple. It was the first time for, for the, the woman, or Mary in this case, to go into the temple, and she would give her first sacrifices. And she would, it was a time of purification. It was also a time of, of dedication. And, and you, we see both of those kind of taking place almost uh, uh, simultaneously. But it's beautiful. If you go back and you read the book of Leviticus, chapter 12, in your own time, you'll find that Mary is following and Joseph are following exactly according to the Hebrew traditions. So here it is, this time of purification, 40 days after the birth of Christ. 40 days here and they're going in for purification. What do they do in this time of purification? Again, Leviticus 12 will tell you that a woman would go in and she would offer up doves or and a lamb, turtle doves and a lamb, but if they, and Leviticus allows room for this, if they were not wealthy enough to afford a lamb, they could offer up pigeons. So pigeons or a lamb. And it was for purification of their own sins. Now, that takes us back even to last week's message to just point to the fact that Mary could not have been divine if she was a sinful person. But when Leviticus points out that a, that a, that a woman would go in, it was not just for the whole cleansing process of the birth process, but it was also for her sin. So we find Mary going into the temple and offering up turtle doves and pigeons uh, as a cleansing sacrifice to the Lord. But it was also a time of dedication. You might look at it as a first century baby dedication. Whenever they're taking the firstborn son from the womb of a mother, they would take that firstborn son in for a time of dedication. We have purification. We have dedication. But what happens in the process of this purification and dedication, there's a revelation and there's confirmation that comes through this time. And what we do is we have Simeon, this old man, this man who's up in years but had been promised by God that he would not die until he saw the Messiah was born. And so let's, let's look at this passage of Scripture. Again, it begins really in chapter 2 of Luke and begins in verse 22. But we're going we're gonna to jump down to verse 25 and start reading there. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And, his, and this man, that's all we know about him, was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Again, what do we know? He was righteous. He was devout. The God's Spirit was already in him. All right? So we know that the Holy Spirit did not was not invented on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was already at work. He's already at work in the life of Simeon. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came to the Spirit, and he came in the Spirit into the temple, and the parents brought in the child Jesus. First time, okay? Uh, no, first time was the, the circumcision. Now's the time he's coming in for a time of dedication. To do for him according to the custom of the law. And he took him up in his arms. So here's this old man who comes up, Simeon. Now, maybe they knew him, maybe they didn't know him. I, we don't really know that. But he comes up and they take. He takes Jesus 
And again, you kind of bring your newborn baby into the church. You think about that. Or you go to Walmart for the first time with your newborn baby. And what happens? Everybody's gooing and awing and they're kind of spitting their spit right there on your baby and they're looking over, breathing their germs on the baby. Who knows what this old man, you know, what he was like. How, you know, but they willingly allowed Simeon to hold the baby. And what a beautiful moment happens here in the arms of Simeon as he's holding this young 40-day-old baby And he took him in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I'm ready to die now, God. Your promise to me is fulfilled. It's it's complete according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. We'll come back to that in a moment. For the glory of your people, Israel. Can you imagine the chill bumps that were running up and down Joseph and Mary's spine as this young, uh, this older, devout man is holding their child and he's breathing across this blessing across their son. And what a time of, again, it was a purification, it was, it was dedication, but it became a time of revelation and confirmation in this moment. Whenever they're with Simeon and Simeon is giving the blessing. Interesting thing, this story doesn't end there. goes on, there's another character introduced. Again, all this is in the temple setting, so you can just imagine the throng of people and the busyness of the moment and the worship that's going on all around. And another person is introduced. Her name is Anna. Anna is a prophetess. Now, Anna in her, in, 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 is an interesting thing because many people, again, because they pick and choose the stories that they want to talk on and focus on, they sometimes skip over Anna. Anna was a prophetess in the temple. Now, again, I chuckle somewhat to myself whenever somebody raises up verses like in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy when it talks about a woman's to be silent. But when you go from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible and you see women speaking, prophesying, teaching, uh, it's a little bit of inconsistency that goes on. And this is something that that has come up as I've asked Glory to speak from time to time or other women to speak from time to time. And, and so just give me, pardon me just a moment to put a pause on the message and just kind of address that from, from uh, Anna's point of view. If Anna was active about her faith and active as a prophetess in the temple, wh- wh- why is then you go over to, to 1 Corinthians and you go over to, to Timothy and you find them the, telling the women to be silent and cover their heads and so forth? Because the irony is, again, is there's almost a duplicity because the same who would argue that a woman should keep her mouth shut in the church, also they allow themselves to have their heads uncovered. And the same verses that say, cover your head, women shut your mouth, also says cover your head. And so, again, we pick and choose what we follow. That, that's in, inconsistent. So you come to, uh, again, you come to this passage, and then we'll give you two C words when you're interpreting or going in your Bible studies. Look for the context one. Context is important. So what was going on that in Corinth and in Ephesus, that's where Timothy was pastoring, that, that Paul would write and tell them, ladies, to be quiet and cover your heads, but yet we find throughout the Bible prophetesses and women speakers throughout. There's something contextually going on here. Well, to this day, and the, the McAdams who were here a few weeks ago, live in this area of the, of the world. 
And they talk about how still to this day there is a sexual perversion of that, of that, of that culture. And that in that day, in the city of Ephesus, one of the towns that, would be, that, that Paul would have been addressing with Timothy, women were, uh, let's just say, loose and loud. Let's just put it like that. All right? And it was a free-for-all. And so you have these new believers coming into the church. And these loose and loud women were coming into the church. And uh, immodest as they were, and loud and obnoxious as they were. And so basically, in Corinth and in Ephesus, which is not very far apart geographically nor morally at that time, worldview-wise at the time, absolutely on the same page. And so what, what, is, what does Paul do? He says, listen, you've got to get order. You've got to get order to your services, order to your churches. Says, and if, that means the women have to shut their mouths and cover their heads, and let's do that. All right, let's get some order to it all. He's like, Mike, you're, you're dancing. with No, I'm not. It's the context. Because the second C word that you need to, that you need to get down in your Bible interpretation is the word cohesion. Because if you believe, as I believe, a high view of Scripture that God intended from, from Genesis to Revelation to be one continuous story all woven together, then you can't have inconsistencies. There needs to be a cohesion. There needs to be congruency between Genesis to Revelation. And so you need to have that consistency. And what you have is you have throughout Scriptures women playing a role Mary Magdalene, I believe, preached the first resurrection message to the disciples. If you look at that, and you look at Deborah all the way back in the Old Testament, and you look at Philip had four prophetess daughters, and you find Anna here in the Scriptures. Now again, I'm chasing a rabbit, and I'm through. But I just want to challenge you, as you do your Bible studies, look for context, look for cohesion, because I don't believe that Bible contradicts itself. There's a central message about it, and it all ties together. Because you have Anna here. In the scriptures, and let's pick up and read the, the passage, verse 36, so you get the context. Very important, the context. Verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So we get quite a bit of description of who she was. She's been a widow, she was married for a few years, but since that time, she's not remarried. What's she been doing with her life? Verse 37. And then the, uh, and been a widow for 84 years, and she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. So we have two characters that we want to look at today. And I'm going to call them the spiritually in tune people. What do the spiritually in tune people believe about Jesus? Because we have a man, Simeon, who's full of the Holy Spirit, who's devout. We've already read that. You have, you have Anna here who's worshiping, fasting, and praying, praying night and day in the temple. She's a prophetess. You have two spiritual giants. These people, again, they don't get the name recognition of a Paul. They don't get the name recognition of a Peter. Or they don't get it of, of, of a Lydia. They don't get those name recognitions that we know of, or a Mary, or a Mary Magdalene, or a Mary of Bethany. But these were giants. And what do they believe? about Jesus. I think some confirmation happened on that day, and I want to point out two points of confirmation that the spiritually in tune people gave on that day to Mary and Joseph as they hold their 40-day-old 40, 40 baby. I almost said 40-year-old baby. It's kind of hard to hold a 40-year-old baby. A 40-day-old baby in their arms. 
But here's the first confirmation that came their way, that Jesus was a part of a big picture, of God's big picture. Don't miss it. Jesus came on mission. He lived on mission. He died on mission. He was a part of God's big picture mission. Now, and again, I want to emphasize the big picture. When you step back and you listen to the words of of Simeon, you see a big picture thinker, and uh, and not just Simeon, but what what he paints as a picture of who Christ is. They're holding a 40-day-old baby. They're they're trying to figure out how to breastfeed, how to change the diapers, and, and how to get this baby on some kind of sleep schedule. But Simeon's going way bigger than that. He's saying, there's something bigger that you're holding in your hands than I'm holding in my hands now. And I want to show you this big picture. Two things that I want you to note about this is that how wide was the picture of Jesus' life? And it was the world. His, his, if you want to measure the, the width of his, 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 his mission and His calling and, and what, what, what Jesus, this 40-day-old baby, was to be about, it was about the world. It was about the world. It wasn't just about little Jerusalem or Nazareth or Bethlehem. It wasn't just about what Joseph and Mary wanted for this little baby. This, this baby had a mission from God. And this mission from God was for the world. And so anything short of that is missing the very mission that, that He is about. And this, in fact, look at verse 32 with me because you catch this. It says, at the very last part of this blessing that he's giving over Jesus, Simeon says this, in the light of revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. What is that statement? But it's a statement of prophecy. Because at that time, day and age, the Jewish nation was under oppression of Rome. It was not a free nation, and they did not like the Gentiles. They didn't like anybody that was not a Jew. And they wanted their own freedom. And they were looking for a Messiah that would restore the Jewish nation. But what Simeon says on that day is he's holding this little baby in his hands. He says, this baby is for the Gentiles. It's for the world. And a Gentile was anybody that was not a Jew. And I just want us to understand the scope of Jesus today. On the very 40 days of His his existence, already God was making it clear that this is a global baby for all the world. I think about our team that's in Mali right now. And I think about the Christmas story of Simeon here. And I wonder, no, I don't wonder, I, I absolutely will make the assertion. I believe that maybe the best way, the more biblical way to celebrate the Christmas story is to be on mission with God at Christmas. I mean, we need to be on mission without God throughout our lives, but if we really want to enculturate the Christmas story into our life, it's to understand that He is for the nations. He is for the world. And the fact that you're taking the message of, of Jesus to the ends of the earth, that is what God was about. That's why Jesus came. He came for the Gentiles. And when we come to the Christmas season, we have, we have two temptations. Two major temptations. Are we going to be worldly Christians? Or are we going to be world-class Christians? Are we going to be worldly Christians because everything about the Christmas season is stuff and gifts and giving and all that kind of stuff? Are we going to be worldly Christians? Or are we going to be world-class Christians? 
Because whenever you hold baby Jesus at 40 months and you enter into the life of Simeon, Simeon's holding Jesus and he's saying, this baby's for the nations. He's for the nations. We need to be about nation work. About all the peoples of the earth. When you come to my favorite, absolute favorite verse in all the Bible, you'll come to John chapter 1, verse 14. I read it, quoted it a few weeks ago. And the Word became flesh. And He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the story of Jesus in one verse. And the Word, Jesus, became flesh. He became a missionary. He came and what did He do? He dwelt among us. I like Eugene Peterson, what he says there. He pitched His tent among us. He lived in in, in nothingness. He, He lived just like us. He pitched His tent among us. And then what does He do? He just shows off God. His miracles, His teachings. He just shows off God. The glory of God. It was all about what Jesus was about. And He gives out grace. And He gives out truth. He gives out truth. Some of your people, sometimes you need grace. And sometimes you need truth. And sometimes you need truth. And sometimes you need grace. And Jesus was full of both. Beautiful, powerful verse. I, I preached that verse so many times, i got to move on. But I want us to understand, when we're looking at the width of God's picture today, the big picture of Jesus, and was what they got on that day, was they saw, they saw that Jesus was for the world, but they also saw something else. How deep the picture of Jesus was. And it was a picture of suffering. It's a picture of suffering. As you can imagine, still Simeon's holding baby Jesus in his arms. But the story doesn't end just with that simple, beautiful blessing. Pick up verse 33 with me. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. I would too. Any mother would. Chills up and down the spines. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What a statement. As he's sitting there holding this baby, and he says, I just want to give this baby back to you. Before I do, I want you to let it know, and in no uncertain terms, that what's going to happen to this baby, it's going to pierce your soul like a sword. What a statement. I mean, you'd almost want to grab your baby back and and shelter it and hold it tight and say, don't take my baby and talk like that. He says, your baby is going to suffer. What a statement. A day of glorification, a day of celebration, a day of so many other things. But no, he brings up blood. He brings up suffering. He He brings up pain. Why would you do that, Simeon? What a change of events. He's just giving the picture of Jesus' life. He's for the world, but he's also going to suffer. And it's going to be a sword in your soul. And the irony of that is, is that there's two words in all of New Testament for the word sword. There's the, there's the word sword that's used most of the time. It's actually the word to use for a dagger, as if a Roman soldier would always have a dagger on his side. And at any time, he could pull out that dagger and, and stab you or stab an enemy uh, up close. It would be hand-to-hand combat. 
That wasn't the word that he used. The word that Simeon used was almost uh, not a sword. I mean, we translate it as a sword, but it it was more of a spear-like, a Persian spear. And the spear, he said, will pierce your soul. I like to travel the world and places I go, I like to collect things from places... And this is a Maasai spear. One of the first places I went in Africa, is the first place I went in Africa, was to work among the Maasai people. And I was there for a week and I taught through a good part of the Old Testament and just shared with these Maasai men. At the end of my time there, they came up and they gave me this spear. You've got to understand the Maasai still live in a, in a very, uh, very uh, primitive lifestyle. They still make their homes out of cow manure. Uh, they don't see that as a dirty thing at all. They see it as a very, very, uh, very good thing. They, they still drink uh, from the blood of the cow. They'll pierce its, its jugular vein and, and then seal it up. But before they grab, before they seal it up, they will, they will uh, get some blood from, that, from the cow and they'll mix it with some of the milk. You talk about a Bloody Mary, there's a whole new meaning to it. And, uh, and so they take this and they drink it. That's a cocktail for them. And it's a celebration. They'll, they'll even take manure and cover their heads and their bodies with it. Because, again, it's, it's just a part of their culture. They gave me this spear. And this, they said this spear is what we use when we stand out by our cattle. And we protect them from the lions because they're still very rural. The lions and leopards that may attack them. And so when I was reading through this and they talked about a spear. It said a spear will pierce your soul. I thought about baby Jesus and if this was maybe the symbol of Christmas that we might have in the future. is a spear going through the heart of a child. Because that's exactly what physically happened to Jesus when He hung on the cross. When He was suffering, they took a spear and they put it through His heart physically so that He might suffer and die. But it was prophesied that Mary's soul would have the spear going through it. Think, what a story. Your soul will experience, experience a spear, but Jesus will experience it physically. It's a story of suffering. It's not a pretty picture. It's not the best picture, but David Platt, I think, said it well. Christmas is revelation by humiliation. The sovereign creator has become a slave of creation. Anthenius was a 4th century bishop in Alexandria and he defended the deity of Christ in the Council of Nicaea. And as he defended it, he became known as one of the greatest communicators of, of the incarnation. Because it was a question of Jesus coming to earth in flesh and, and dying. And C.S. Lewis even said, everybody needs to read from Athenius. And he said this, he became what we are that we might become what he is. Number two, I want us to understand when we look at this, is not just from the, from the life of Simeon. I want us to understand from the words of Anna. Anna had a statement that should stir us as well because Anna in verse... Well, we read from verse the earlier verses there. I did not read verse 38. I want to read that now. And this is what Anna did. And we know about, a little bit about her now. Anna said this, and it came up, on that very hour that she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all. Would you do yourself a favor? Would you underscore 
to speak of Him to all. Underscore that in your Bible. I want you to just see inside of Anna was this message of declaration. See, the, the Christmas story today and what you experienced yesterday many times is nothing more than an experience. The Christmas story is something we sit around and we retell and we relive and we talk about again. But I want you to notice Anna's response to this newborn baby. It wasn't just an experience. She became a participant. She began to tell. As a prophetess, as a woman, as a teacher in the, in, in the temple, she began to declare to everyone. She began to speak of Him to all. To speak of Him to all. Just get that now. To speak of Him to all. Can you imagine her running through the temple and saying, hey, there is the Messiah we've been waiting. Hey, 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 come over here. You guys, there is the Messiah speaking of Him to everybody she could. We've been waiting for Him. You know, what could we do? What could we learn from the Christmas story from a Simeon or from an Anna? And it's to learn from the angels whenever they themselves said, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among, among those to whom He is pleased. And even the angels couldn't keep silence. What if we became participants in the story of Christmas? Not just experience it, but participate in it. And if we were to participate in it, and we were to look into the life of the spiritually entombed, we wouldn't keep our mouths shut. We, we, would, we would tell to everyone the message of Jesus. I'm afraid sometimes we're like muted followers of Christ. and I don't see that as the example. See, the message is, is, is bad, it's good, but it goes to great. There's bad news that we have to tell people. And that we have to just understand that I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And I need a Savior. And you need a Savior. We need to go into this world and we need to find some way and some palpable yet personal kind of way is to help people understand that there's bad news out there. And we need to understand that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. We need to also give them the good news. That Jesus has come to redeem fallen humanity. He has come to redeem you and me in this broken world. How can we give the good news? That's what Anna did. But how can we give them the great news? Not just humanity. Not just mankind. But the good news is that you can experience the redemption and the forgiveness of the Savior. Now that's pretty simple. Tell people the bad news. Tell them the good news. But give them the best news. End with that one. And tell them that Jesus Christ can take away their sins. Here's a challenge for you for 2011. You've got one week to pray it through. Here's the challenge. I want you to think, think of, pray about, who is it, whatever, whatever, I don't know. Bring one person far from God to faith in God in 2011. Can you make that commitment? I know that seems so small. It's just one in 365 days. But you know what? If you're disconnected and you felt uncomfortable with this and you've only been experiencing the Christmas story and not living it and participating in it, it won't make sense. It, it, it will be difficult. It will be at times confrontational. How do you do it? You just start investing in people. Start investing. Start inviting them into safe communities. 
This hopefully is a safe community. Invite them into a safe community, your body life group. Invite them into a safe community just over coffee. And just begin investing and then inviting and then interceding. Alright, you have that inviting conversation, you have that conversation with them, and then you just start praying and let God start doing a work. Because what I would love to see is to come back next year, at next year's Christmas, and I would love to see everyone invite to our Christmas Eve service that one person that they did as Anna did. They told them about Jesus. They invested in them. We close our service time today by looking at the cross, looking at the spear, looking at the baby Jesus that became the sacrificial Lamb of God. We have four stations around this room that if you today say, hey, I... I'm a follower of Christ. I am living in the right relationship with Christ. We invite you to join in the fellowship around these tables. You just pick your station. You go to take a little wafer, take a little cup. You can step over to the side, wherever. Find your own little place. Come as a family. Come alone, whatever it is. And just breathe in for a moment this spear in this babe. And think of the suffering of our Savior. And then if you would make that commitment today to say, God, I don't know who it is, or maybe you do know who it is. I want to bring someone to faith in you. Far from you, Lord, I want to bring them to faith in you. And I want to do it this year. 2011, I want to do it this year. What would that look like? Make that commitment. Because you know what the thing is, when you take that wafer and you take that cup, you know what you're doing? You're doing what 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 says. As Often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's what the Bible says. Is that literally what we're doing when we're taking this cup and we're taking this uh, this drink is we are being a witness as animals. Let this be your time. We're going to turn the service back to you now. You come and you're ready. Father God, this is your season, not our season. We are your people. So, Lord, today I would pray that this would be your place, in your time, when you do a beautiful work in our lives. Lord, would you still our hearts and focus and get past the the cuddly little baby and see the suffering servant of God coming to live in flesh while among us. Not just for us, but for the entire world. Lord, we even take time in this time to pray for our volunteers. Pray for them, for safety, as they tell the Christmas story in a village that very likely many have never heard this story that we take for granted. Lord, we bless you.